This episode of the FDNY Pro Podcast is brought to you by the FDNY, the FDNY Foundation, and the National Fallen Firefighters Foundation. Hello, my name is Joe Minogue. I'm a retired FDNY lieutenant and the current liaison for the National Fallen Firefighters Foundation to the FDNY. The National Fallen Firefighters Foundation is honored to continue our support and commitment to the FDNY and its annual Safety Week initiative. The National Fallen Firefighters Foundation understands how critical safety is to firefighters, EMTs, paramedics, and the department as a whole. Offering our support to the FDNY for this important Responding Safely initiative is in line with our mission at the National Fallen Firefighters Foundation. As always, our goal is for everyone to go home at the end of their tour. Our programs and services support the entire fire service community, including all members, their families, and the departments they serve under. To learn more about the National Fallen Firefighters Foundation and the programs we offer, please go to our website at firehero.org. Thank you and stay safe. Welcome to this edition of the FDNY Pro Podcast. I'm your host, Battalion Chief Brian Mulry. Each June, our department commemorates Safety Week by picking a theme and sharing information on a specified topic for all bureaus and units to focus and collaborate on. Run by the FDNY Safety Command, the goal is to increase awareness and ensure safe operations for all our members. This year's theme is Responding Safely with a special attention for avoiding intersection collisions. Responding safely to a call for help is the first step in any successful operation, and it's more than just driving to the fire or emergency. It's everything that is pre-planned to ensure that our arrival on scene and the operation are a success. With us today is Chief of Safety Mike Myers to discuss further. Thanks for being here, Mike. Welcome. Good morning, Brian. This year, again, we find ourselves coming into Safety Week. You picked Responding Safely with a focus on intersection collisions. I thought maybe we'd start off with what all our members could do to respond safely. Obviously, most of it falls upon the chauffeur. They have the most responsibility operating the apparatus. But maybe you could just share with us a few things what every member can do to be ready to respond. Absolutely. Uh, the chauffeur is responsible for the safe response of the vehicle. The officer along with them is also responsible for that safe response and to make sure that the chauffeur stays in control. But every member can do their part with helping us respond safely to an incident. Safe apparatus response starts at the beginning of the tour, right, where the chauffeur and the officer will get together. They'll collaborate over what street conditions are like, what weather conditions are like. Is there any unusual construction going on in their area? Is anything uh, different about their response pattern? Some of the things that we want to do before the tour starts, we want to check that vehicle, make sure that all the warning lights are working, make sure that the apparatus starts up, make sure that all lights are on, make sure that there's no equipment loosen the cab. You want to check air horns. You want to check sirens. You want to make sure, again, that everything on that rig is fully operational, fully functional, and that you're ready to go. We all get up. One of the first things we do in the morning is check the weather. What are the weather conditions going to do? How is that going to affect my response? I know for myself, when I'm driving to work, I know, okay, it's raining out today. I know it's going to take me longer to get to work. I know that there's going to be more traffic. So it's the same thing with our apparatus. If it's snowing, if it's wet out, we get that sun glare as you're driving west towards the city. Sometimes they can cause these traffic stops out of nowhere because people are blinded by the sun. You want to prepare for that weather, know what you might face, and be ready to, to go, have everybody ready to go. 
Each time we respond to a call or to a run, whether it be to a fire, EMS, or an emergency call, we want to make sure that we respond as quickly as possible, but we want to also make sure that we respond as safely as possible. And when we respond as safely as possible, that means, again, that we're going to stop at every intersection, make sure that someone gives us the right of way. We're going to travel at rates of speeds that are safe for both us and for the citizens of New York as we're responding in there because the most important thing is for us to arrive on scene and assist the caller or whoever needs help. Generally, the city kind of constricts your, your movement as far as fatalities go versus probably the fire service as a whole where people are operating at higher rates of speed. Right. Most national fatalities take place on major highways or major thoroughfares. Right. We obviously have our fair share in New York City. We call them highways, but I don't know if we yeah. ever could hit full speed <laughs> no matter what time of yeah. the day it was. With COVID, we were able to hit some of those higher speeds, and that's always where the danger comes in. And yeah. Well, distracted driving is something that is on the roadways is the top of the list for dangers for us. You look around on the road, inevitably... It doesn't matter if you're on a side street, if you're on a main thoroughfare. And sometimes it's scary on the highways, people are constantly on that phone or holding that phone up, talking on it or looking at it as they're driving. We've had our, our tragic accidents back in 1984, firefighter Tony Shands from Engine 297. For those who don't know, maybe you could explain to us what happened in that incident. In that incident, they had responded to a car fire on a parkway. At that time, we had booster reels on fire apparatus. And that's what we used to stretch to put out car fires at that time. Uh, the firefighter was helping other members of his company take up that hose when a vehicle crashed into the rear of the fire truck, killing firefighter shans. Now, isn't it correct that as a result of that, that's why we have two units respond on a highway? Yes, it used to be a single unit response. Now two units would respond in. The second vehicle would be used to block the first vehicle to make sure while they were operating uh, that couldn't occur again. Everybody obviously knows what the right-of-way is, but can you uh, maybe get into it a little further, the definition of the right-of-way and how that affects us while responding? Sure, absolutely. When we arrive at an intersection and we're responding in, especially if we're going against that stop sign, if we're going against that red light, we want to make sure that the right-of-way is granted to us. By law, we're allowed to take that intersection, but the other drivers who are driving in the other directions have to grant us that right. And to grant us that right, they have to notice us. So that's why we need to slow down or come to a stop at each intersection to make sure as we go across each lane of traffic that we don't proceed past that lane of traffic without making sure that that the right-of-way has been granted to us by those drivers so many times on response we see it as we're going through an intersection you look to the right and if it's three lanes you want to make sure that each lane has granted us that right-of-way as well because you can see sometimes the folks in the middle lane or on the far lane they'll speed right by or pull out from behind that stopped vehicle because they don't realize why it stopped until all of a sudden they see a fire truck or an ambulance or police car going through that intersection. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, again, there are a couple of factors at play. The new vehicle is a soundproof and is incredible. Right. Which is why we went to the vibration horns as well as our regular air horns, because some of those air horns or sirens don't actually pierce the newer vehicles. There's so many more newer vehicles right. on the road now. A lot of people are out there driving with earbuds and whether they're on the phone or listening to something else. Right. And those earbuds become a distraction, right? Because they're having a conversation with somebody usually, or they're listening to some type of music and it's more focused in your ears and it's harder to pay attention to everything else that's going on around the roads. And again, for us, as we're coming through that intersection, our lights and sirens might not pierce that, that ability. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The main focus of this year's initiative 
intersection collisions. Obviously, they tend to be more serious, cause more of our major injuries. Uh, maybe you could just explain to our audience how you classify them and how they're investigated. Sure. So what we do is we call every accident a collision on the FDNY. So every time our apparatus, whether it be an ambulance, fire truck, or a, a civilian vehicle, each one of those is going to get an entry into our collision reporting system, which tracks for the city and for the fire department where our vehicles are being hit, how they're being damaged, and again, allows us to take corrective action when necessary, depending upon who's driving, how fast they're driving, the types of accidents that they're getting into. Uh, how do you decide how that's investigated as a major accident? We classify a major collision as any collision where there's a significant number of injuries to civilians, a significant number of injuries to firefighters, or a significant number of injuries to our EMTs who are responding to the scene. We also go by the amount of damage to the apparatus or how many other cars or vehicles we may have hit during the, that incident. If we get a fire truck into a building or a car into a building, if we have a fire truck hit into another fire truck or a fire truck hit into an ambulance or two ambulances running into each other, anything that becomes a more noteworthy type of accident. That's when we're going to make it a major, and then at that point, then the safety command is going to respond to do their investigation. The highway patrol of the NYPD would respond in, and the safety command and the highway patrol would work together, uh, again, to determine the factors that contributed to that accident. What are some things you'd like to highlight when we talk about responding through intersections? Some of the things I'd like to highlight when responding through intersections, again, is to know your response area when possible, right? That's not always possible when we have apparatus that are relocated or out of their jurisdiction or traveling long distances from their main response area. Almost every major collision that we go to and investigate, when we talk to the chauffeurs or the officers, they almost always know where their trouble spots are when they're responding in to the scene of a fire or to an emergency or to an EMS call. So th they know where the difficult spots are. And again, to make sure that we never become complacent when we're responding through those intersections, even if it's late at night or in the middle of the morning before traffic builds up. So we want to, again, make sure that we know our area. That's probably our number one thing that we need to know. Again, it's up to the chauffeurs and the officers to be aware and have that situational awareness. So when that chauffeur's responding from out of their regular response routine, again, they're unfamiliar with the response pattern to the address or to the firebox or to the MS call. So again, like that's going to completely change their mindset and they'll lose that comfortability they have. As well as the other units aren't going to know where you're responding from or where, where they're going to encounter you along their route to the fire or EMS box. Yeah, and it goes back to situational awareness. I guess. I that could arise also when you have relocators operating in an area too. Right. So a relocating unit would be when we have a, a unit that's out of service, a relocating unit will get brought into that area to help coverage for to fire. Even the fire coverage. And yeah. EMS does the same thing for, for their responses as well. When they have an area that's been hit hard, they'll bring units in to help alleviate some of that heavy workload. And again, the, those units are not going to be as familiar with the response patterns. In your Safety Week literature, you talked about covering the brake as a tactic to result in shorter stopping distances. Maybe you could explain that to us. So when we talk about covering the brake, what we're talking about there is you want to take your foot off the accelerator pedal 
and you want to put it on top of the brake. Not hitting the brakes, but just reducing it, taking it off that acceleration, and putting it over the brake will allow you a much quicker reaction time, almost three quarters of a second. Again, what doesn't seem like a lot, but when you're trying to stop a vehicle as large as ours or as heavy as ours, whether it be an ambulance or a fire truck, it's going to significantly reduce the amount of feet we need in order to stop or come to a complete stop. You talk also about viewing each lane as a separate challenge. I know we have in our response district, I think about some of the parkways with traffic lights, there are three lanes. Each lane is a separate challenge, that's for sure, because of all that soundproofing that we talked about earlier and because of earbuds and because of all the different things people are doing in vehicles, you could be distracted by your kids in the back. Each vehicle, sometimes even though a vehicle is stopped, doesn't necessarily mean each lane stops. They could see someone stop in the left-hand lane and that middle lane or that right lane might not have the situational awareness of, of the vehicle on the left who sees the fire truck or the ambulance approaching and then they don't get to see that. Yeah, no, that's a real uh, dangerous spot for us. You talked about being a second, or in the battalion chief's case, the third apparatus in a line sometimes, right? And people are not expecting that. Right, and I think we're used to that because of the way we respond from a firehouse and everybody rolling out of the firehouse, and you'll usually have the engine the truck, and then if there's a battalion chief in quarters, they'll be following suit. And just because we see that first vehicle get to the intersection and get through, we start to get that feeling of, okay, it's good, we just saw someone safely pass, that means that we can roll past as well. We still need to come to a stop and still need to make sure that they recognize us as a response vehicle as well, especially when you get down to that battalion chief level, because again, now you're in a much smaller vehicle, the fire truck's much more noticeable, much louder than a battalion chief vehicle. Yeah, you're right, there's a bit of complacency, right? Like, we just expect everybody knows that you respond with two apparatus, as opposed to the public, they see a fire truck and they probably not thinking more than one. You see it in the wilderness all the time, right? When, when animals are crossing a river, right? The first one has that hesitancy, they cross the river yeah. and then others all follow suit the minute the first one makes it through. Okay, this is good. We, we got this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's usually when the crocodile grabs one of them yeah. at the tail end of it, right? Because he's been watching too. So, you know, it's just uh, the same type of thing with us. Just because one gets safely passed doesn't mean we can let down our guard. You know, one of the most important things for us to do is, is when we're responding to a fire scene or an EMS call, we want to make sure that we actually get to the scene to help the citizens of the city. Yeah. In your Safety Week literature, you also get into some case studies, a couple of different scenarios, each with similar and sometimes different takeaways. But the first one was when two fire apparatus collided. Maybe give us a brief overview of that and what were some of the takeaways? Yeah, we had two apparatus that were responding to a fire emergency. One of the apparatus was already out on another call. It was from the same house, so ordinarily they would be following each other. In this case, the engine was coming from an EMS box. So as they were responding in, they came to one of those blind intersections, and we call a blind intersection an intersection where there's some type of building in the way where on both sides the field of vision is blocked by those buildings, by those shrubs, by a sign. Could be construction, it could be scaffolding, it could just be that the building was built very tall and high, closer to the corner than most buildings are, but it doesn't allow us to see past or into that next intersection as we're going past. So in this case, we had two fire apparatus, again, one responding from out of quarters, one went through a red light, 
because they didn't see or hear the other vehicle coming or didn't anticipate it coming because we were coming out of sequence, meaning we weren't following each other from the same house. The apparatus with the green light was going through. One of the other companies went through the red light because they thought that they had the intersection. They wound up actually hitting each other in a total L-type collision. Yeah, and certainly that's a real danger spot for us, unexpected response patterns. We do the same runs over, we respond the same way, but sometimes runs come in while units on the air. I like that the dispatcher oftentimes gives you a heads up. I think that was started a long time ago as a courtesy almost, just to let everybody know, hey, they're out, they're coming from a different spot. Uh, you might come across them as they're responding right. because they're coming out of their response sequence. Yeah, yeah, that's really important. I think that's a really helpful thing. Especially with the chauffeurs in the firehouses being senior members of those firehouses most times. They know their response patterns and they know where the other firehouses are located, where they're coming in from because they've been on so many calls throughout their history with those other companies. They kind of have an idea of where the other companies are coming in from. Another case study you cited was a fire apparatus and an ambulance collided at an intersection. Talk about some of the takeaways from that incident. Sure. In, in this case, we had an ambulance who was responding to the hospital. We had a fire truck that was responding to a fire. Both units trying to help save lives and in this case met each other, unfortunately, at an intersection where they collided. And uh, with a takeaway there was there was construction scaffolding at the incident. Again, there was construction visibility. Yeah, limited thing? visibility, and there was construction scaffolding that surrounded the building on all four sides. So as the ambulance was coming down the block, they couldn't see to their left, which would be where the fire truck was coming from, and the fire truck couldn't see to their right, which was where the ambulance was coming from construction scaffolding, right? How many sidewalks uh, of the city are covered with the scaffolding? You know, you don't really think about it obstructing your view, but it really does, right? It comes out to the corner of the sidewalk. Oh, absolutely, because now it's taking a building that ordinarily we'd have 13-foot sidewalks in New York City. So now you have that scaffolding that covers those 13 feet. And again, as, as you're trying to get past that and look for that, there's a significant amount of structure that comes with those scaffolding. It's much harder to see into those oncoming intersections. And almost every borough in, in the city of New York, there's a significant amount of construction being done. Let's go through some of the risk factors contributing to these intersection collisions, some of them we just talked about. And start off, how about limited visibility? What are some examples? Limited visibility occurs when we're responding in lights and sirens, and then we come to an intersection where there's some type of permanent physical structures, meaning that there's a building, fence, something along those lines with the PVC fencing that you can't see through now. That becomes another issue. Those permanent physical structures that make it difficult to see into that next intersection or to anticipate what's coming from that other direction as you're going through that intersection. Some of the stuff that we come across is temporary physical structures, right? That would be our construction scaffolding, construction fences. Sometimes it can be large parked vehicles. Sometimes you wind up with buses that are waiting to onload or offload, trucks that are delivering so those parked vehicles can add to it. Some of the pickup trucks and some of the other larger vehicles make it very difficult to see into that intersection. You have double park cars sometimes that also make it difficult to see what's coming from that other direction. Then we have other stuff that's, that's topographical in nature, like hills or dips or curves in the road, as well as unusual intersection configurations. One of those type of configurations in an intersection, the normal one we see is where you wind up with three, four, or five intersections or avenues all coming in together. I used to work in Times Square and Broadway, where 7th Avenue and Broadway cross. You know, you have six or seven different lanes of traffic coming into one area, which makes it extremely difficult because of the lights and then trying to check to see that everyone's granted you the right of way as you're going through. 
Not only that, but you also have these e-bikes, right? So that's like these electric bikes that go 30 miles an hour. You have these mopeds. I mean, we have 10 million people in the city of New York on a regular normal workday, right? On a normal non-COVID day of the week, you know, you have 750,000 people that walk through Times Square every day. Our chauffeurs and officers do such a good job navigating in a very difficult yeah. area as they're going I through. I agree with you 100%. How about weather? You know, we know that, you know, weather can increase stopping distances. That's a big thing. Maybe just touch on that briefly. No matter what vehicle we're driving, no matter what the weather condition is, right, when we're driving a large vehicle at a high rate of speed, even if it's your own automobile, vehicles don't come to an immediate stop. Even though it seems like in the car itself that you're coming to an immediate stop because you'll get that jolt as you step on the brake, it takes a certain amount of feet for that vehicle to stop. The higher rate of speed you're going, the longer it takes to stop. On a regular dry condition, right, if you're going 25 miles an hour, you'll usually need at least 250 feet to stop. If you're in wet, snowy, or conditions or icy pavement, you can double that distance or sometimes add a little bit more to doubling that distance in order to stop because of the, the wet surfaces and hydroplaning. They focus on this section about traffic control devices, meaning stoplights and stop signs. Really, it's what we have here in the city we deal with. Uh, how do they impact the risk of a collision? Traffic control devices, half of our intersection accidents occur when we have traffic control devices at intersections. Most intersections in New York City on the main thoroughfares are always gonna have a traffic control device. Some of the smaller towns or somewhere else outside of the city might be a little fewer and further between, but usually even most of the areas of the city, you'll have stop signs. It's almost unique in New York City, depending upon which borough you're in, when you come to an area that doesn't have a stop sign at every intersection, it's almost uncomfortable when you're driving through them, but they'll have some type of a stop sign on one of the directions, at least on, on those type of avenues. Every time we're going through one of those, you know, we're not coming to a complete stop or inching out, we're increasing our risk of accident by 50%. Yeah, yeah. And another big impact is traffic density. We touched on this a little earlier about how, you know, uh, it's been a little lighter lately. But maybe we could talk about the time of day and how it affects the traffic patterns Absolutely. and our uh, risk. Traffic density is, is a huge issue for us when we're out there. As we're coming out of COVID, I think we have even more vehicles on the road right now, especially in the late afternoon than we had even pre-COVID traffic. So we have a large amount of vehicles coming in and out of the city. So that traffic density is very high. So when, when we have the time of day where traffic density really affects us. It's hard to get through or get around those vehicles. People will move out of your way. People don't know what to do when an apparatus is behind them. They're supposed to go to the right. A lot of times they'll stop, yeah. go to the left. Unexpectedly. Panic. This might be their first time encountering a, a fire apparatus or an ambulance. So they might not be used to that. You know, highway traffic density obviously affects us, right? Because if we have a lot of density, we're not going to be able to get high rates of speed, or we're driving in a, a lane that might not be a lane or around. So again, you have to be careful with that. Low traffic density is really dangerous for us yeah. because that's when we're able to pick up significant speed. And also the personal vehicles around us are able to pick up significant speed. It's gonna it be goes harder back for them to time to and night also. You have to, you know, those accidents on Saturday at 440 in the, in the morning, right? The most dangerous ones. We have a parkway that runs through our district. And those are the ones where there's a high rate of speed. You know, you worry about the time of day with people out. And, uh, right. and, they, and they result in a significant amount of injuries, yeah. even if it's not a fire apparatus or EMS apparatus involved in it. Yeah. Even when we arrive on scene on those where the vehicles are traveling fast, low traffic density definitely increases collision risk. 
All right, well, listen, this has been great. Uh, you've given us a lot to think about. I, uh, I wish you luck with the initiative this year. I'm sure it's going to help get the word out there and make our job safer. We appreciate you coming down. Absolutely. Thank you very much. And, and again, the only thing that we try to do in the safety command and every, every officer on the FDNY tries to do, whether it be for fire or EMS, is to make sure that everybody goes home in the same condition that they came in to work with. All right, terrific. Thanks for coming down. And thanks, everybody, for tuning into this edition of the FDNY Pro Podcast. For more training and information from our subject matter experts, go to FDNYPro.org. FDNY Pro is online at FDNYPro.org. Subscribe today and get inside access to the FDNY. Learn more about our publications, professional conferences, and other tools for first responders. Train with New York's Bravest.